I love this one. Coincidences to get characters into trouble are great. Coincidences to get them out of it are cheating. I remember you telling me this when you first found this list. Yes. It was a while ago. It was. I remember you telling me this point, and this was when I was writing, um, oh man, I think I was in middle school. So you know, that story that was heavily influenced by Maximum Ride. And you told me that. And I remember thinking, that's annoying because it kind of it makes you have to try harder. <laughs> but it was a good point. And I actually, I've actually always thought about that since you told me that. Welcome to The Right Note, a podcast dedicated to the independent author. From the craft of storytelling to the business side of publication, we cover it all. I'm J. Ryan Fenzel. And I'm Kira F. Jacobs. And this is The Right Note. In this episode, we crack the code of storycraft with a thorough examination of Pixar's 22 rules of storytelling. Welcome back to The Right Note. Remember to join our community and follow us on Instagram at the Right Note Podcast. And if you like what you hear, post a nice comment about the show on podchaser.com. Pixar Animation Studios has produced some of the best movies in the past 25 years. And I said movies, I didn't just say cartoons, because these films transcend the animated feature moniker. Films like Toy Story, The Incredibles, Monsters, Inc., Finding Nemo, Up, Coco, Ratatouille, and Wall-E among others, they're all masterful stories. Now, you grew up with these. Remember remember these, as these come out, Kira, and watching them as a kid? How did, how'd they hit you? I remember Toy Story the most because that whole idea of your toys coming to life is like something that you picture yourself as a kid, and then seeing a movie about it is awesome. So I remember that. I remember watching Nemo in theaters. I remember watching... I don't remember what year Monsters, Inc. came out, but I feel like I remember watching that in theaters. I think you went to that with Lily Moans and Marissa and Milford Cinema. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yes, I remember that 100%. And it's, I mean, they're great movies. And even now, as an adult, they're still great with great stories and themes. And yeah, they're touching, you know? They always have a deeper meaning behind what they're showing. Well, that's because their stories are so well-crafted, and that's what we're really going to get into in a little bit here. But um, I remember when Toy Story came out, and it was the first full-length, I think, computer-generated movie. I grew up my whole life watching like animated Disney cartoons that were hand-drawn stuff. And I, I just remember it was so, so neat to see the, the, the computer-generated cartoon-type landscape. And how, you know, they got the three-dimensional look to it and things like that. And uh, and as each movie that came out, it got better and better image-wise. But also the stories maintained or even got better and deeper uh, as they went along, you know. But Pixar as a company, it, in general, it's a it's pretty amazing company. And it's a, and a really interesting story how they came into being. Did you know that Pixar started as a group within... Uh, Lucasfilm's company, Industrial Light and Magic, which is the like the special effects company Lucas made. Yeah, wasn't wasn't one of the first things the the lamp, the jumping lamp on the Pixar words that they created. I remember he- reading or watching something about that. 
I think that was uh, one of their trials or experimental early animations. But George Lucas, I'm going to sidetrack just for one minute on George Lucas, because he not only did he create Star Wars and this whole cultural phenomena that it became, he, in, in, a, in a real sense, he transformed the way movies are made into the digital age because he hated editing like the film they used to do like they just actually have reels of film and you'd actually physically cut it and splice it and things like that and he just said there's got to be a better way and and he thought digital was it and this is like in the 70s before any of this stuff was even like possible and part of his quest to to find all this digital technology he he envisioned was uh, acquiring these software and these uh, computers that eventually uh, became the Pixar setup. And he had this group in, in Industrial Light and Magic. And at some point, it was, it was like it was after the Star Wars films and before his next big thing. And cash flow was a little, you know, a little iffy. And he, he spun off Pixar into its own thing. And Steve Jobs ended up buying it. Steve, you know who Steve Jobs is? Apple, dude. Yeah, the founder of <laughs> Apple. Yeah, which which I forgot this. So I was researching this for the show. I forgot this, but Apple, the board actually ousted Steve Jobs from his own company. I forget why, but it was it was some disagreement they had, and and they kicked him out of his own company that he started. So he was the head of Pixar, and they got into uh, to a relationship with Walt Disney, and it was kind of this love hate relationship, and and they needed each other, but they wanted to be. You know, like Disney wanted control and Pixar wanted independence and all that. Eventually, I mean, they kind of settled into an arrangement and they put out the first full-length computer-generated movie, which was Toy Story. And it, that kind of began Pixar's reign as these master storytellers. And I think a major reason for this, uh, being able to tell stories so well, is their their creative process that they developed as a company. And they call it the Pixar Brain Trust. And what that was, was they would have multiple projects going on in the company. And all the directors and the writers and the uh, storyboard artists, they would all examine each other's work and, and kind of review it and read it. And they would give what they, they gave their candid notes, what they called it. But it's really constructive criticism, you know. So this kind of evolved into this a filmmaker-driven studio which the creatives were driving each other. As opposed to the normal Hollywood, traditional Hollywood is there's an executive-driven studio, meaning like directors are micromanaged through mandatory notes from developmental executives. And a lot of times the developmental executives weren't always the best people to be giving notes, right? So I, I think this free-form, peer-review, creative-centric way of, of writing their stories really was the ground zero of what they call Pixar's 22 rules of storytelling. And I think it developed from this process. For the listeners, who put together these these 22 rules of storytelling? Was it that was it Pixar collectively or was it one person? Well, they first appeared in a tweet by a Pixar story artist named Emma Coates. And it's unclear to me if these are her rules that she kind of collected over time. Or if it was a collective thing that, you know, maybe they had on a bulletin board or something in the, in the company. Yeah. But she tweeted them out and it just kind of became this mythical kind of list, you know. And because of the track record of Pixar and their, and their movies and the stories that they tell, you know, it, it kind of helped to shed light on how they do it. 
you know, how they consistently make good films and good scripts, you know. Before we get into the list, we are going to do Characters King. Yes. So Character is King is a segment that we do where we each pick a fictional character that we think is a great creation, and we always theme it to go with our episodes. So our Character is King this week is a Pixar edition, obviously, and it is who is your favorite Pixar character? And so I'm going to have, Dad, I'm going to have you go first because I think I know who you pick and that will at least weed out (laughs) one of my (laughs) options. I think you know who I pick too. But let's just get this over with then. My <laughs> pick for Characters King Pixar Edition is, ready? Mr. Incredible from The Incredibles 2004. Is that your guess? I knew it. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> well, who else would it be, really? I knew it. I knew it. I, I love the character. I love the movie. The movie was phenomenal to me. It was a genius story idea. To illustrate, and what they did in the story, what I really love about it is they illustrated the importance of celebrating exceptionalism in the face of a rising sentiment at the time, or even today, to downplay greatness and to celebrate mediocrity. And what I think this movie did really well, and we kind of touched on this before in another episode when we talked about science fiction in general, where science fiction allows you to take maybe a political or a social issue of the time of like today. And you frame it in another world, another planet, another alien race or whatever, and you kind of create like a a similar idea. But you stripped away all the real politics and social things that kind of quagmire the issues in real reality in modern day life today. And And it lets you look at the issue just purely for the issue's sake. And that's what The Incredibles did with this exceptionalism discussion. In the story, you remember... The superheroes were kind of driven to go into hiding because during some rescue, Mr. Incredible did. Uh, one of the people he rescued actually sued him for causing him damage, like he got a trial lawyer to, to represent him. And this kind of led to this uh, the public turning against the supers because, like, oh, they're doing more harm than good. And it's funny, uh, uh, years later, the Marvel movies. Captain America, Civil War, they kind of touched on the same kind of thing when the, the the governments wanted the Avengers to sign the Oslo Accords. So like they were like supposed to be directing them where they can go in and not go in. So it's the same kind of thing. But I really love Mr. Incredible because you meet him and he is he's a father and a husband struggling to come to terms with living a normal life. Not a superhero, just he's an insurance salesman, you know? It was funny to see this big guy trying to make this normal life work. And also he's touched on another thing that people or guys maybe in general would would understand is kind of like missing the glory days, you know, like today, maybe a guy uh, who played football or baseball or something in high school, and he was a a great athlete, but years later, all he's got is the clippings on the wall to remember that, you know, and and you see Mr. Incredible in in one of the scenes, he's in his uh, den. And he's looking at all the clippings of when he was a hero, you know, and that kind of what draws him into this, this scheme, you know, that uh, the villain syndrome has. But like I said, I like the message that exceptionalism really should be allowed to flourish or allowed to be exceptional instead of being stifled. And um, syndrome at one point says, you know, and, and his argument is it isn't right for there to be people who are superheroes. In other words, it isn't right for people to be exceptional. 
His plan is he's going to make all these inventions and sell them to people and everybody can be super. And he says, when everybody's super, no one will be. And he's trying to get this common denominator so no one is exceptional. You know, so it was it was a unique way to bring that argument into it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Mr. Incredible, I, I love the idea. I loved his character in it. He's very relatable. Yeah, that was my pick. I knew you were going to pick that one. He was honestly my first pick too, which is funny. But when you think of when I think of Pixar, I think of Woody, and he's kind of like the the guy, you know. So I was like, okay, I'm not going to go with Woody. That's too obvious. I'll go with Mister Incredible because it's a little different. But then I thought you. I was like, dang, <laughs> he's going to do Mister Incredible, so I can't do that. So I ended up I ended up picking Mike Wazowski for Monster Inc. because I went through a phase where I watched Monster Inc. like over and over every night. And the reason I loved that movie so much as a kid was because Mike Wazowski was so funny. And it always surprises me how children's movies like that can put humor in a movie that's funny to kids and adults at the same time, because that's not, you know, it doesn't really work that way in real life. So when they can pull it off in a movie, it's great. And I think even when I watch Monsters, Inc. now, Mike is still hilarious to me. Just his voice, the dumb things he says, how he interacts with Boo and how he interacts with Sully is just great. He is the humor of the movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, that's that's why at, at Disney World, they have the laugh floor. And Mike Wazowski is the MC. Yeah. And I can go to that show and I'll laugh every time. I know the jokes. Yeah. But it's still funny. But it's still funny. Did you know Billy Crystal, the guy who does his voice? Did you know anything else that he's done? Because leading up to that movie, he was a pretty uh, popular comedian. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was in movies like... When Harry Met Sally and City Slickers, which is a really big one, your mom loves that one. So he and and he was in Princess Bride. He played a, a smaller part. Oh, 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 yes. Okay, yes. Now I know. Wasn't he also in oh, the one about the dentist fairy tale? The Tooth Fairy. Yeah, the Tooth Fairy. Wasn't he? Is in that, that what he was in? Was he in that? And he kept smacking Dwayne Johnson with his dust. I don't. That's a long. Yeah, it was oh a while. Oh my gosh, there. I can't remember. That movie was so long ago. But yes, fantastic movie, hilarious. I I almost watched it tonight actually, but I didn't because Josie would be scared of monsters. So we'll wait on that one. But anyway, yes, that was my pick. <laughs> Excellent, Mike Wazowski and Mister Incredible. And uh, for those listening, let us know what your pick for Characters King is. Hit us up on Instagram at The Right No Podcast. Let us know your pick for Characters King this month, and uh, we'll chat about it online. So now we are going to dive into Pixar Studios' 22 Rules of Storytelling. And as we mentioned a little bit ago, these are first posted by a uh, Pixar story artist named Emma Coates, and they've kind of gotten among writers at least, kind of a legendary status. Uh, writers, storytellers really admire Pixar's storytelling ability. Consistently quality storytelling from movie to movie to movie. And like we discussed earlier, the Pixar brain trust, you know, I think that's it. So without further ado, we will share with you Pixar's 22 rules of storytelling. And I think these are not in any particular order as in like, this is the most important to the least important or whatever. I think these are just collected rules that they put together over time. So we're going to start off number one, obviously. And number one says, and the, what these are is uh, they're kind of uh, talking to the writer, right? So they're kind of like uh, advice to the, the person writing the story. 
So number one, you admire a character for trying more than for their successes. And the first thing I thought of when I read this was Rocky Balboa, because Rocky didn't win his fight at the end of the movie. He did not beat Apollo Creed. And the whole movie, he was training and struggling and trying to get ready for that fight, but he didn't win. But the thing is, we loved that he he was so passionate about trying. And, and what he did do, he managed to do, is he took Apollo Creed 15 rounds. He went the full distance, which no one had ever done to that point. So in a way, he got a victory that way. But we admire Rocky for trying to defeat the world heavyweight champion. You know, and that's the first thing I thought of on uh, number one. I had to kind of stop and think about that one for a minute because I was like, oh, is that is that true? And it is. And I thought of the movie um, Castaway with Tom Hanks because there are so many points in that movie where I'm like, he is going to die. He's not going to make it. But I would still be like, you tried your best. You did so good. I applaud you for it. But I mean, spoiler alert, he makes it off the island. But that's one of those movies where if he were to die, I'd be like, you know what? You, you did your best and... I applaud you for that. So yeah, I would agree with number one. Moving on to number two. Number two, keep in mind what's interesting to you as an audience, not what's fun to do as a writer. They can be very different. I believe this is true. Yes, very true. Sometimes we might get in our heads as writers. We get ideas like, wouldn't it be cool to do this or develop or dive into this kind of aspect and Sometimes you got to sit back and say, who else is going to want to read that? You know? Yeah. I've had to delete full sections before where I'm like, okay, does this propel the story at all? No. It was just fun to write. And I've read books too where I feel like things should have been cut out that weren't, where I'm like, okay, the author was just having fun with this, but I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So we agree. Number two is a good one. Yes. Agreed. Number three. Trying for theme is important, but you don't see what the story is actually about until you're at the end of it. Now, rewrite. Yeah, that's a great one. It is a great one. And in my second novel, Inherit All Things, I think I discovered this in a way, because Inherit All Things was a treasure hunt story. And basically, that was my thinking when I started writing it was, okay, my main character, He's a, he's a treasure hunter. He's going out. He's an adventurer, right? But when I got to the end and the plot threads that I had pulled together for this guy, I realized that what was happening with this Jack uh, Sheridan character was he's he was reconciling unresolved threads from his past. Like he had an ex-lover who kind of got him into this search for the coins that he's looking for. Um, and he was at a crossroads in his life where you know he didn't want to keep working at the company he was working at. But he didn't know what to do next. And and he was kind of held back by all these questions and, and unresolved things in his life. And I didn't really realize that was going on until I'd gotten through to the end of the story. So, yeah, I think number three is spot on. Yeah, I would agree. Just similar experiences with rereading my writing and realizing that there's, you know, themes that I didn't know was there or maybe I kind of had thought could be there, but I didn't really focus on it. And then when you reread it, you're like, oh yeah, it really did pull through. But I think if you focus on theme, it can pull you out of the story, honestly. Yeah. It could be a a deterrent to progress, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Number four, before I read it, I'm going to say this is an incredibly simple, but an incredibly effective writing prompt. It's kind of a fill in the blanks kind of statement. 
But if a writer does this, I think it's super helpful. Number four reads as follows. Once upon a time, there was blank. Every day, blank. One day, blank. Because of that, blank. Because of that, blank. Until finally, blank. Now, if you go through and do this exercise and fill in these blanks, it lays out your story for you. But it's really hard, even though it looks simple. <laughs> yeah, but it gets your mind thinking in that direction. Mm-hmm. It, it sets up your, your story idea, your premise, whatever, and, and the kind of the next steps in the plot advancement. And yeah, I, I, this was, like I said, simple yet effective, number four. Yeah, agreed. I think that's a good way to kind of, if you're trying to write a blurb for your book, I think that's kind of a, a good way to get started. Obviously, you don't want to start your blurb with once upon a time, but it's just a good way to get ideas flowing because writing a blurb is really hard. Yeah, because you wrote a three, 400 page book. And for a writer who actually wrote all that, to, to try to condense that book down into 200 words on the back is really difficult. We're too close to it. You know what I found helpful that I do now is I actually write the blurb before I write the book. And that has helped so much because then you're not going through details that you're like, should I add this? Should I not? I'm, I'm putting too much. I, like, cause it all matters to you as the writer, but I don't, I don't know if this works for everybody. I, it probably doesn't, but for me, writing the blurb before helps me write a better blurb. No, I've, I've read that. And, and, you know, People to say, uh, try and do that before you actually write the book. And my initial reaction is like, come on, man. But it makes sense. It really does make sense because mm -hmm. before you immerse yourself in all the details and, that, and that's what you have in your head, you're distilling the story down before you get into the minutia. And that's a good idea. I've actually come to love writing blurbs once I started doing that. I haven't got there yet. <laughs> try it. Just try it. <laughs> Okay, number five. Ready? Number five says, simplify, focus, combine characters, hop over detours. You'll feel like you're losing valuable stuff, but it sets you free. To me, this is a guide for being concise. It strips away all the garbage and it leaves only the story. Yeah, I think I used to struggle with that because again, as the writer, you think everything's important, but then when you start cutting stuff away or like I liked the combining characters idea because a side character still has to have importance and I think sometimes too many side characters can be like why are you here like, no one cares go away but if you can kind of combine and make one maybe one side character more dynamic it makes things better for the story yeah you put you put them in there for a reason but is the reason good enough to create a whole character right mm-hmm so it's like, well, maybe this other character can can do the work that this guy was supposed to do. Yeah. So to me, that's just kind of like, be concise. Keep your story lean. Keep your story lean. Don't put a bunch of stuff in there that is not needed. Okay, number six. Number six. What is your character good at, comfortable with? Throw the opposite at them. Challenge them. How do they deal? And again, to me, this is conflict 101. You created a character and he and he does A, B, and C great. Throw a challenge at him that he's not necessarily prepared to deal with. And how does he deal with it? Conflict. That one's almost like self-explanatory. 
if you've been writing for a while, I guess. If you're a newbie, maybe it's like, oh, light bulb. And I think that's what all of these do is that all these rules, they kind of help your brain to kind of refocus, you know, how you think about, because it's easy to get stuck in a quagmire when you're thinking about your story and working it out and trying to set it all on the paper, you know, and I think that's what these rules do. Yeah. And number seven, number seven, come up with your ending before you figure out your middle. Endings are hard. Get yours working up front. I agree with this. Mm-hmm. My, my current whip, I did this exact thing. I knew, I knew my end scene before I started writing it. And that was very helpful in informing my character's actions and decisions throughout the whole book. That was the same with the testimony of Benega Fletcher. I knew the ending. That was like the first scene I thought of before I even wrote the whole book. But even now, writing new things, like I'm, I've been working on multiple different things just to get my creative juices flowing, but I know the ending of all of them. But it's funny on here, it says endings are hard, get yours working up front. I think the middle is the hardest to write, but what makes it less hard to write is knowing the ending. Right. I don't know how how some authors they just go for it. What's what's it called? What's the what's the term? Pantser? Pantsers. Yeah. Yes. I don't get it. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? And I think there is a, a, a kind of a thing out there where the middle of the novel is such a is such a huge hurdle for so many writers, and I think my opinion is it's a bigger hurdle for for pantsers. Because they come out, they mm-hmm. have this great idea and these great characters, and they start off and and they they're coming out of the gates running, and then they get to the middle, and they're like, "Oh man, how am I going to get through this?" You know, and that's why this one rule is like, "Know your ending," because your ending is going to help you get through the middle. Because there has to be a way to get there. I call it the murky middle because boy, it can be murky when you're just trudging through at forty thousand words, fifty thousand words. It's like, oh my god. <laughs> Get me out of this. (laughs) Okay, number eight. This is kind of Captain Obvious one, but let's say it. Number eight, finish your story. Let go, even if it's not perfect. In an ideal world, you have both, but move on. Do better next time. Agreed. It's kind of a a kick in your pants, right? Yeah. The first draft is always bad. (laughs) Yeah. Just just get through it. Finish it. Yeah. Yeah. That's... Kind of an obvious one. Number nine, when you're stuck, make a list of what wouldn't happen next. Lots of times the material to get you unstuck will show up. I like that one. I had never thought about that until I read through these. And I actually tried this tip on one of my current works in progress. And it was fun to go about figuring out what comes next in a different way. I've just never tried that before. I think it helped. <laughs> I probably need more practice at it. <laughs> to me, this one is similar to one later in the list that we'll talk about. But yeah, it's kind of like it's kind of like redirecting your thinking to some other direction and counterintuitively that'll lead you to where you want to go. Right. I think that's kind of what that nine's getting at. Yeah. Okay. Number 10. Pull apart the stories you like. What you like in them is part of you. You've got to recognize it before you can use it. And for me, first thing I thought of, one of my all-time favorite movies, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, 
I love the movie, Heroic's Bravery Sacrifice. But applying rule number 10, it's like I'm pulling it apart. And what was really impactful is the character of Captain Kirk was always the guy who he cheats death by being clever. You know, he outsmarts computers and and aliens and things. And he never really had to face a situation where he didn't win and he had to face the death of someone he loved. And that's what happened at the end of Star Trek too. when, when spoiler alert, Spock dies. <laughs> but then he came back later, so it's okay. But in the movie, when that came out, we didn't know he was going to come back. It wasn't okay at the time. <laughs> yeah. And and uh, William Shatner did such a great job because what happened, Kirk realized his whole life, he's been cheating death. And, and he, what he said is, patting myself on the back for being so clever. But he's never faced it like that. And I think that was like this emotional impact of that of that movie was him realizing that, you know, and how he dealt with it afterwards. And um, that that really resonated with me, you know. And, and this this number 10 kind of got me to think about that a little deeper. I, I like that one, too, because I think it's easy if you're, you know, if you're writing and you're involved in what's going on in the publishing world, what's trending, what's this, what's that. It's easy to be like, oh, this is trending. I'm going to write this way. But then you're not being true to what to what you like in a story. You're just following what you think other people will like. So I think it's good to know what is important to you and stick to that because if it's important to you, it's going to be important to somebody else, you know? Right, right, right. But like for me, I like character-driven novels versus plot-driven novels. Everyone's not that way, but I know there are a lot of people that way. So I tend to write more character-driven works. Well, and I think that gets back to you can have a flashy movie and special effects and all that stuff, and it can look great. Unless you got a story and characters you care about, it don't mean anything. I mean, you know, I may be in the minority on this one, but like the Transformer movies, it's all CGI to me. The last like 40 minutes of a Transformer movie. It's hard to get through. <laughs> it's just noise and action. And I don't care. I don't care. Mm-hmm. You know, give me a good story. Because like these days, I don't want to say it's easy, but it's it's expected that you can make your film look great. You can make a fantastic looking movie, but you've got to have a good story to back that up, you know, or it's just garbage, you know? Yeah. Moving on. Number 11. It's another kind of a Captain Obvious one, but number 11 says, putting it on paper lets you start fixing it. If it stays in your head, a perfect idea, you'll never share it with anyone. And basically, you have to do the work. You have to get it down because everything in your head is perfect. It's not, it doesn't have the test of reality, the test of putting it on paper, reading it, and realizing that eh, it's not unfolding like I thought it was in my head. Yeah, that one's kind of like a an obvious one, but all, but then again, a good reminder. You got to start, you got to get it on paper so you can find where the flaws are and fix them. Yep. Number 12. And this one is like the one up above that we talked about to me. Uh, but I've actually done this in one in a couple of my books. So number 12 says, discount the first thing that comes to mind and the second, third, fourth, and fifth. Get the obvious out of the way. Surprise yourself. To me, this is a great tactic to avoid cliches and discover new paths to blaze in your story. And I remember, I remember doing this on my first novel. 
And there's a part in the story where, well, normally in this type of story, this would happen. It's like, okay, we're not doing that. And then, well, maybe this other thing would happen. I go, nope, throw it out. And it did lead me the third or fourth time. I did lead to a, a certain idea that I, that I did take. So this works. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's good too. When you're thinking about the end of your book, because I feel like books are set up as the world was okay. Then it was not okay. And at the end, there needs to be a way for it to be okay again. <laughs> and I think sometimes it's easy to go the route of like, oh, and then they save the world. But I like when stories don't end that way, when it kind of ends on like a, it's almost like a haunting ending, you know, like when you weren't expecting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One of the best examples of that is I read this book called The Drowned Woods and this this girl has the power to control water and her whole mission of the book is to save this town that's going to be flooded by the ocean. And, you know, you obviously think she's going to succeed and the town's going to get out and she's going to be with this, you know, she fell in love with the guy in the book, whatever. But the end of the book is her standing in the ocean, you know, holding it back as the city's leaving, as they're fleeing. And then she finally, when she finally knows that the, the people are gone and safe, she tells the ocean, like, fine, you can have me. And it just like takes her. I was like, oh my God, you're the main character and you just got like flooded. But it was so like, I loved the ending because it was unexpected and it was like, it's real. I remember getting like chills reading that. I don't know. I really liked that. Something about that reminded me of Rogue One, the Star Wars story at the end. Yes, I love, I loved that ending, which is weird because like it's traumatic. Jen Urso and um, and Cassian were they they just got melted by the Death Star. Yeah, they succeeded in getting the plans up to Princess Leia's ship or whatever, but they mm -hmm. they didn't. No one no one in their team made it out alive. Everyone died, and it was like what? It was like whoa, yeah. <laughs> but it wasn't that kind of like I I liked that because it's not. I mean, it's real. Like that kind of stuff does happen. Like in you know, if you're thinking about like military that kind of stuff yeah yeah we don't have a death star but <laughs> but we're, we're we're not saying that every story needs to be a depressing main character no, dies ending. but it is kind of nice when it's different is what we're but saying the idea is yes it is is to take the first thing because i think we're influenced by all the years that we've read and seen movies and things we're influenced by what we've seen so our first inclination in a story is to say well this will happen and if you think about it, it's like no, I'm only saying that because I've seen that before. So let me let me go and say another direction. You know, that's mm -hmm. what this rule is really getting us to. And I like that. I like that. Number 13, give your characters opinions. Passive slash malleable might seem likable to you as you write, but it's poison to the audience. Absolutely true. And I think our last episode, I mentioned my, um, my character's king character was John... Corey, and he was like this un-PC character. So he's definitely had opinions and he set them. And that's what made him such a popular character, you know? It's like if you try to please everybody with your character, you're going to end up pleasing nobody. Yeah, I agree. Number 14. Why must you tell the story? What's the belief burning within you that your story feeds off of? That's the heart of it. So I kind of look at this and say, okay, story-wise, what they're saying is 
find your center and never lose sight of it. Yeah. And I think it's just good to, it's good to have a reason to write something because then you are passionate about it and you're putting forth your best effort. I've started a manuscript before that I was excited by the idea of it, but then I realized that it's really not as deeply rooted within me as I thought. And so I abandoned it because I'm not like passionate about it. Right. And I think readers can tell when you're not passionate about something too. Like I've read books before that feel shallow and you can just kind of tell that maybe the author wasn't in it as much as you wish. Right. Yeah. You know, and that's why sometimes it takes me so long to come up with an idea for a book because I know I'm going to have to live with the story. And it takes me longer than I think your average novelist to write because, you know, the day job and all that stuff. But I'm going to live with the story for two to three years. And it's got to be something I care about and I'm passionate about and I'm really intrigued with, or it's not worth me writing. Yeah. So, yeah, 14, true. Um, 15, if you were your character in this situation, how would you feel? Honesty lends credibility to unbelievable situations. I completely agree with this. And I think we mentioned this before, writing in first person, like to my last book, it's easier to do this when you're writing first person because you're kind of already in the immediate sense of, uh, oh, I saw this and my reaction is this. Yeah. Here, did you watch at all the uh, the Star Wars series on Disney Plus, Ahsoka? No. It It was kind of, I liked it, but it was kind of the antithesis of number 15 because like at the end, it was emotionally flat. Like, Incredible things, incredible things happen to these characters. For instance, stormtrooper zombies, like for real, they would shoot these stormtroopers and then this this Jedi magic would bring them back. And you know what the characters said? They said, hmm, that's new. And that was it. That was their only commentary on I'm like, are you kidding me? I'd be oh, like, yeah. holy crap, they're coming. You know, I, I, the characters would have more of a reaction to it, you know? Yeah. And... uh Spoiler alert for the end of Ahsoka, but Ahsoka and her friend Sabine get stranded in this other galaxy, and the guy they were trying to prevent from getting back to the Star Wars galaxy, this this general who they, they feared he was going to start this new war up, he makes it back, and they're stranded. So in essence, they, like, they failed, and Ahsoka didn't care. She shrugged her shoulders, time to move on. I'm like, are you kidding me? what that's so it's like yeah that see that's like why would you even yeah yeah so i don't know like did you get bored writing it <laughs> or are they trying to like take this the stoic jedi like to the extreme or something like that and so i think i mean that's the first thing i thought of when i read this rule it's like yeah yeah they didn't they didn't read this rule <laughs> so at the writer's room i just i'm reading a book right now it, it's a middle grade novel something happened in it where if that happened to me as a kid, I would literally be freaking out. And they hardly reacted. And I've literally read this yesterday or two days ago. And in my head, I was like, really? Yeah. <laughs> You're not going to cry? <laughs> You're not going to freak out? Because I would be I would be petrified if I was, you know, their age and this certain thing happened. But so, yeah, that's dull when that happens. Well, it's keeping it grounded, though. I mean, it's being real. Be real with it. Don't I mean it? It's like your characters aren't really living it then if you do something like that. Yeah. Okay. Number 16. 
What are the stakes? Give us reason to root for the character. What happens if they don't succeed? Stack the odds against them. Absolutely. That like goes without saying, honestly. It is. But you know a good example of this? Oh no, what? Escape from New York is a movie from like 1982 with Kurt Russell. And he played this convict in the near future where New York was this penitentiary. And they just walled in Manhattan, I think. And the president's plane crashes in the, into the Manhattan. And they, they got Kurt Russell out of prison and says, we'll give you a pardon. You go in there and save the president. He goes, fine. You know, and he was one of those anti-hero, you know, I don't care about anything characters. And before he went in there, they implanted these little explosives by his carotid arteries. And he goes, you have 24 hours to get this done. If you try to get on the wall and escape, we're going to blow these, these charges and, and blow out your carotid arteries. If you take this, you know, they're going to drop in a glider and fly in there. Because if you take that glider and try to head to Canada, we're going to blow up your carotid arteries. Just, you get in there and do the job. So as the movie's going on, he's constantly checking his time that he has left. The stakes are he does this or he's dead, you know, and that was kind of an effective thing. Yeah, that's a good one. And uh, another one, it's a recent thriller novel that I, I've been meaning to, to read. It's called Falling. Have you heard of it? I don't think so. It's about a, an airline pilot and his family gets kidnapped by somebody, terrorist or something. And they say, we're going to kill your family unless you do what we say. And what we say is you're going to crash this airplane. And it's the story of how he deals with this and how he tries to subvert you know, what they're doing. And all the reviews were like really good on it. I want I want to read this story, but but that's another thing. It was like stakes are high. On one hand, your family dies. On the other hand, two hundred fifty people in your airplane are you're gonna you're gonna condemn them to death, right? So mm-hmm. that's a an unwinnable situation, right? Yeah, that's yeah. Okay, number seventeen. No work is ever wasted. If it's not working, let go and move on. It'll come back around to be useful later. Kira, you're living this, aren't you? Yes. I <laughs> yes. And I was just about to say that's one of my that was one of my favorite tips because it's so easy to to be like, oh, I wrote this for no reason, you know, it's not going anywhere, whatever. But I mean, I just I started writing a book last spring and I was going so hard at it and you know, it was I was loving it, and then all of a sudden I was like, nope. It's not, it's not, it's gone. And I recently just, you know, maybe last week as I've had a lot of downtime feeling so sick, I reread it and I was like, wait, this is actually good. I I still think this is good. But now that I've had time away from it, I've kind of been able to find different plot points that I think are better or, you know, figure out why I wasn't liking it at the time. So I'm I'm someone who I feel like if I if I ditch a project, it's like a failure, you know? I kind of have yeah. that feeling. Right. Um, but I'm learning that it's not it doesn't have to be so linear because honestly with everything you write, you do get better. You should at least. Right. Yeah, and it doesn't mean that if something doesn't work out now, it doesn't mean that it never will, you know, with a specific manuscript or screenplay, whatever you're writing. Yeah, just don't don't look at the clock. Don't think I'm wasting time. You know, I'm running out of time. I have that thought all the time. I've never been able to do that. I've never been able to like start into a project 
and then say, no, this is not happening. Drop it. I'm going to something else. Because I think part of that is it takes me so long, like we said, for me to pick out an idea and say, I'm sticking with this one to Leon, you know? Yeah. Once I do that, I'm pretty committed to it. But yeah, you know, but that's, it's great you can do that because like you said, you're going to have these pieces of writing that you can go back to and say, you know what? This is pretty good. The closest thing I have to that was this novel I just finished the first draft on. About 14 years ago, I had the idea to write it. And I actually wrote a chapter for this book. All that It was a scene, and it was in my head. And I go, you know, I'm not. And 14 years later, when I, when, I, when I kind of picked that idea back up and I read that chapter, I'm going, this is pretty good. I'm going to do this. And I did. Yeah, see? No work is ever wasted. It's kind of extreme in my part, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 14 years later, I pulled it up on my old Dell computer. Oh my gosh. Okay. I think that's a great tip. Good tip. Number 18, you have to know yourself. The difference between doing your best and fussing. Story is testing, not refining. This one was kind of confusing to me. It is. And I, and I think what it is is... What do I mean, fussing? <laughs> is this the difference between polishing a piece of garbage and crafting a piece of art? Mm. You know, like if there's something fundamentally wrong with the story, but you're you're busy trying to get the little grammar or the description of something right, but fundamentally the story sucks. Is that what they're trying to get at? <laughs> Maybe. I think the wording is weird. It is. I don't like 18. Yeah, I don't either. Because I don't know how you... Doing your best and fussing... 18 is our least favorite one. What is fussing? Anyway, we don't really understand 18. <laughs> it's the difference between doing your best and fussing, meaning... Like fussing over... Like I, it, To me, that means you're trying to get the fine details so perfect. But if you're trying to do that on something that isn't great, all you're doing is, they say, polishing a piece of turd. You know. Anyway, it's 18. Well, let's go to the 19. Okay. <laughs> 19. I love this one. Coincidences to get characters into trouble are great. Coincidences to get them out of it are cheating. I remember you telling me this when you first found this list. Yes. It was a while ago. It was. I remember you telling me this point, and this was when I was writing, um, oh man, I think I was in middle school. So, you know, that story that was heavily influenced by Maximum Ride. And you told me that. (laughs) And I remember thinking, that's annoying because it kind of <laughs> makes you have to try harder. <laughs> but it was a good point. And I actually, I've actually always thought about that since you told me that yeah. all those years ago in what, 2011, 10? Oh, man. I don't I, even yeah, remember. Way long ago. But yeah, 100%. I love this one. It's true. You know, it's, it's a cop out, I think, to, to use a coincidence to solve your problems in your story and save your character from the situation he's in. That's 19. Number 20. Okay. I like this one too. I haven't done it yet really, but number 20 is an exercise. Take the building blocks of a movie you dislike. How do you rearrange them into what you do like? Now, I've actually, like I said, I haven't done it, but I've seriously thought about how would I retool Return of the Jedi to make it a good movie? (laughs) You didn't like that movie? It was it was such a step down from Empire Strikes Back. And I'm like, Yeah, I know what you mean. Oh my gosh. George Lucas, what the heck did you do? 
<laughs> and I remember thinking, you know what I do? I put more focus on Han and Lando's relationship and their friendship. And that kind of would mean more when they separated at the end. Get rid of Jabba the Hutt. And kind of <laughs> cut back the Jabba the Hutt stuff and really cut back on the Ewok stuff. So it's like, yeah. Yeah, if I was going to do a movie, it would probably be that one where I restructure it <laughs> and make it a better movie. But That's funny. I think of, I love the movie Brave, which is actually a Pixar movie, which is kind of funny because I'm using it. I was almost <laughs> a bad example, but I know what in the world. I love that movie. Like I love the movie's vibe and I like the storyline, but something's missing and it actually annoys me that I don't know what about it is missing for me. And so I'm going to use this and I'm going to go watch it again and figure it out. Do it. Yeah, do it. The movie sets, it sets you up to think like, oh, this is going to be fantastic. And then it falls short. And I don't know why, because I do like the storyline and I can't figure it out. Rule number 20, do the exercise. Yeah. And we'll do a follow-up episode on Kira's rewrite of Brave. And maybe I'll do my rewrite of Return of the Jedi. Yeah. <laughs> I still like the movie. Okay. Number 21. We're nearing the end. Number 21. You must identify with your situation and or characters. You can't just write in air quotes, cool. What would make you act that way? That one's kind of similar. It's kind of like the other one about. Yeah. Like if you were kind of like 15, if you were your character in this situation, how would you feel? Right. It's like placing yourself in their shoes. Yep. It's kind of like you can't write divorce from your character or the situation and just write something so it looks good on the page. You really got it. Unless you're writing a character who's really different from you. But even then, you can say, okay, I wouldn't act like this, but this other person's uh, personality, they would probably do this, you know? Mm -hmm. But I I think it's another one of those that uh, keep focus on the character and what's going on and not just the surface of a story. Mm Mm-hmm. Last one, number 22, what's the essence of your story? The most economical telling of it. If you know that, you can build out from there. To me, this is like number 14. Basically, know your story, keep centered on it. Yeah. Key, always keep that in mind as you're writing. The essence of your story will always get you through the hard spots, the little hurdles you have. Always go back to your main character. What does he want? Why can't he have it? That's going to inform everything he does and says or she, right? Yeah. All right. There you have it. Pixar's 22 rules of storytelling. And I think we agree that most of them are pretty darn good. Except for 18. We don't know what that means, but everyone else (laughs) (laughs) we agree with. (laughs) So hail Pixar. I hope they keep making great movies, great storytelling. And... Like you said, we actually reference some of these rules in our writing today. You know, we still do. So it's it's kind of a great thing, way to recenter your mind in writing your stories. I think just to go through this, this list occasionally, and it might help you through some some tough spots. You know, I will definitely be using this list. I hope everybody enjoyed our review of the twenty two rules from Pixar. And as we say on the right note. Keep your pen to the page and write on. <laughs>